Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, September 27th, 2021. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the latest film and TV news. This is Slash Film Editorial Director Peter Soretta. And joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? Uh, not much. Last night I was uh, at Halloween Horror Nights, Ben, and someone actually came up to me and was like, I am a Slash Film Daily listener. Oh, cool. Yeah. You uh, usually get approached about <laughs> the Ordinary Adventures uh, YouTube channel, but it, it was fun. Uh, someone was was a fan of this podcast, so that was That's cool. awesome. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's get into it. Let's start off with uh, some heavy hitters. This is something that could theoretically change the course of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and everything we know of what Disney owns in terms of these comic book characters. Uh, ben, what is going on with this copyright battle? Yeah, so there's a big copyright battle happening uh, right now with Marvel. And several lawsuits have been filed by a bunch of different parties, including the estates of comics legends like Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. And at the center of this controversy are the rights to characters like Iron Man, Spider-Man, Doctor Strange, Ant-Man, Hawkeye, Black Widow, Falcon, Thor, uh, some others. These are obviously uh, integral characters to what Marvel is doing with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And basically, it it all boils down to the estates of these creators, the the families, the descendants of the people who created these characters, are suing... uh, I guess it's technically Disney now that owns Marvel to terminate the copyright. So basically that these families, the estates would be at least partially in control of these characters moving forward. Disney is probably, I mean, in all certainty going to put up a a pretty serious fight here because there are no joke, like billions of dollars hanging in the balance uh, based on what, what this could mean. So it's a little complicated, but the way that I understand it is that, uh, you know, a lot of times comic book writers uh, will get hired by DC, Marvel, whatever. And basically they, they're under like quote unquote work for hire contracts, which means that anything that they create uh, under these 
very specific jobs that they're working for these big conglomerate companies belongs to the company. It doesn't necessarily belong to them as creators, but there's maybe some, a little bit of wiggle room here. And that's what these, these estates are trying to uh, sort of wriggle in and say that like, Hey, these people who created this stuff are, um, you know, they deserve, uh, or at least their, their estates deserve (laughs) to, to be able to benefit from, you know, all these billions of dollars that these giant companies are making off of, you know, these characters and stuff like that. So uh, it gets a little complicated, um, especially in terms of like what it could mean if if certain things sort of shake out in different ways. And one of the examples, uh, the sort of contemporaneous example of what a similar thing that's going on in the industry right now involves the Friday the, the 13th film franchise. So Victor Miller, who wrote the screenplay for the first movie, filed for termination doing the, you know, the, the same act that these estates are doing right now. And this legal battle that he is engaged in has dragged on for years. And the problem is that he might own the Friday the 13th name and what was contained in the original movie. But what came later, how the franchise evolved, that stuff would not necessarily be covered under you know, that, that umbrella if he were to win that case. So like Jason But those Voorhees, other films use the name Friday the 13th. That's true. Uh, but, but I think... Th- so Jason Voorhees is the example okay. that's used, right? Like the the main killer in those franchises or, or in that franchise. And Jason actually was not a killer until, or at least in the way we know him, you know, wearing the, the hockey mask and all of that stuff, the iconography associated with that character did not happen until the sequel. And then he didn't even wear the hockey mask until the third movie, I think. So uh, in theory, Victor Miller, the screenwriter, could end up owning the name, but Jason Voorhees, as this sort of separate entity could end up being controlled by the studio. And a similar thing could end up happening here with these characters, these Marvel characters like Spider-Man and Dr. Strange, like maybe their origin story, which were covered in their first comic books could belong to the estates, but any sort of derivations or evolutions of the character, things that that were introduced years later, maybe by other writers or artists or, or something like that could end up being, uh, like still belonging to Marvel and Disney. So technically they could get away with using, you know, a different version of Dr. Strange or something like that. So it's all, it's like I said, it's very, very complicated. Um, ultimately, Peter, I think this is just a, a case of like these people Money. trying to find, well, yeah, of course, but these people trying to find a loophole and uh, it sounds threatening right now, but I think, I think there is so much money at stake here that Disney is probably just going to, do whatever they need to do to settle this out of court until, you know, to avoid this, this actually coming to, to a head in a way where they actually lose or have to share the rights, um, you know, of these characters with the estates of these different families and and people who are involved. I feel like for me, the most confusing part of this, Ben, and I know you do not have the answer to this because this is above both of our pay grades. But uh, if you look at any of the Avengers films, if you look at Doctor Strange, if you look at Spider-Man, you'll see a credit based on the Marvel comics by Stan Lee. So he he already is getting a credit, and I'm assuming with that credit comes some kind of compensation. And I guess I'm answering my own question here. It's probably that there's probably a larger level of compensation yeah, then, I would guess so, because something similar happened with um, with Jerry Siegel, who was one of the co-creators of Superman, and he ended up suing, I think it was Warner Brothers, the, the parent company that owns um, 
that owns DC and, and Superman and ended up winning that case surprisingly. And now any Superman project that goes forward, has to include the line, like a credit that says by special arrangement with the Jerry Siegel family. And that sounds similar to that Stanley, uh, uh, credit that you're talking about that, that exists right now. So yeah, I'm not entirely sure what the differences are between those two or what the Lee estate is, is actually looking for. I suspect you're right that it's probably just a, a larger percentage of what's going on given Stan Lee's sort of outsized, uh, or at least the perception of his, his contributions. I think there's been a lot of controversy about what Stan Lee did or did not create, you know, during his time in Marvel, but I, I guess the bigger question to be had here, and I again, I don't think either of us can answer this, is if they win this, Ben, do they get any creative control? Do they get any like uh, ability to say no and stop things from happening, or is it purely a financial arrangement? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, from <laughs> from what I'm reading here, uh, I mean, it kind of seems like the the estates would would be able to sign off on. Uh, the, these characters appearing in certain manners. And, and I mean, I don't know if it's like uh, you can make movies and we sign off on everything else. Like we don't want Dr. Strange to show up in any theme parks whatsoever. I mean, I'm just making this yeah. stuff up, you know, but the, the, who, who knows what the, uh, what the ramifications yeah. could be if characters like this were, sh- I mean, it's complicated enough that, that the character of Spider-Man the movie rights are sh- being shared right now between Sony and Disney. So like you throw this other uh, wrench into that machine. Um, I, I honestly don't, don't know what would happen there. <laughs> now I'm no lawyer, but I'm going to, I'm willing to bet Ben that this is going to be settled out of the court Yeah, yeah because yeah. Disney does not want a precedent to be made with any of these, because then there's how many artists and how many uh, comic creators that could be, you know, coming for their, their piece of the action. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Okay. uh, Let's move on to another Marvel property. That's the Eternals. This is coming out soon. And uh, the internet has been kind of a buzz because the MPAA rating has been announced PG 13, which isn't that surprising. You know, there's been uh, many, Marvel Cinematic Universe movies that are PG-13. But the MPAA rating description says that it includes brief sexuality. And this is something that we have not seen with any of these Marvel Studios movies. Uh, I'm guessing it's just like a a very innocent scene. It's fantasy violence in action, some language, and brief sexuality. Ben, what do you make of this? Is the internet being uh, making too much of this, or is there something here, something to I this? I hope not, Peter. I hope the internet isn't making <laughs> enough of what's going on here. Because, I mean, you know, we love the Marvel movies, but if you look at, you know, I was just talking about this on a recent episode with Chris. If you look at uh, a movie like Shakespeare in Love, um, the, the chemistry that happens between those lead actors um, in, in that film it really just blows away anything that that you see in even the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I mean, yeah. there are so many movies, there are so many opportunities, there are so many hot people in those Marvel movies that you would think that there would be, uh, you know, some steamy on-screen relationships there. And I know this stuff is meant to... to wait, wait, let's talk about this, Ben. Has yeah. there been, in any of the Marvel Studios films so, so far, like, any real... Rom- okay, I was going to say romance, but there has been romance, but has there been like any hint of sex at all i don't think there Um, has 
I'm trying to think of like a specific, you know, like uh, in like Hitchcock <laughs> would do this thing like where, uh, you know, characters would be on a train and the train would go through a, a tunnel and oh, yeah. down the side of the, of the mountain or something. And like, that's pretty obviously uh, some symbolism for what's going on there. Um, I don't think Marvel has done anything quite to that degree. I, th- I mean, the only relationships that I can think of that it come even close to being considered I guess it's sexy in almost any way are like Steve and Peggy. Um, yeah, maybe, that, they maybe didn't get Star-Lord to like really and Gamora maybe, uh, but I don't know. It, it's pretty bad. Like, you know, uh, Natalie Portman and Thor, um, what's her name? <laughs> Jane, Jane Foster and Thor. Yeah. That's, that's kind of a wet, a little bit of a wet blanket. Even like Tony, uh, Tony Stark and Piper or Pepper Potts are like, Okay, they, I see what you're trying to do. They had that sweet moment, that sweet moment in what was it, the first or second? I think it was the first film where like he is getting his like heart, in, his um, yeah, uh, I want to say Stark reactor, arc reactor, mm-hmm. uh, re- replaced or whatever. But it's not sexy in any way. It's it's kind of an emotional connection that you kind of get between them. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the fact that this movie has gotten a PG-13 specifically for brief sexuality, I'm I'm very curious to see what the MP... I think they're called the MPA now. Like, they're no longer the MPA. Oh, really? They, they dropped an A in there somewhere. But, um, yeah, I'm curious to think what... Or to, to see what they deem uh, brief sexuality in the MCU. Like, what does that mean? I, I think you're right, Peter, because these movies are so, like, four-quadrant. This is not going to be something that that we're probably even going to talk about after the movie comes out, I would guess, uh, because it's probably just going to be like a blink and you miss it kind of thing. Like, oh, that's what that's what I, I'm betting here, it's going to be like two characters kissing. Well, I mean, like how much how, how heavy does the kissing have to be? So it's brief sexuality is the question, I guess. Yeah, in and bed? Like, you know, there there were characters when uh, in the in the first Iron Man, right? Like uh, when the reporter uh, leaves tony's oh, bed yeah. she's like wrapped in a sheet if i remember correctly so like if that didn't get it then this has to go beyond that um yeah so i, I don't know I'm, I'm curious to see what happens here but yeah i mean just to, to uh I, i'm i'm in jest when i suggest that i hope this is like a full-blown <laughs> sex scene obviously that's never going to happen but i think the mc the point is the mcu could use a little bit more uh electricity a little bit more chemistry between its actors yeah, no, I, I can agree on that, even as a fan of the MCU. Uh, another thing I'm a fan of is Let the Right One In. It was a, that When that film came out, I was like a huge supporter of that. And I, I was actually a big fan of Matt Reeves' remake, his American remake, uh, Let, Let Me, Me In. in. Yeah, yeah, I think it was Let Me In. Uh, now they're making a TV series based on, on this property. Ben, tell us about it. Yeah, they, this has actually been in the works for a long time. I think it was picked up by one network and then dropped. And now it's going to go to Showtime. And Showtime has actually ordered 10 episodes of uh, what I guess is going to be the first season of this thing. Production begins in New York City sometime early next year. Uh, Damien Bashir, who's known for his work in A Better Life, is going to be playing the lead role, which is like the the father character. I don't know how much we, we want to give away of the story of Let the Right One In, Peter. But just broadly speaking, it's... a um, it's based on a Swedish novel. The, the movie came out in 2008. Uh, Matt Reeves' remake came out in 2010. So we're talking you know, a decade plus ago at this point. But the, um, the basic gist is that there is a father and a daughter who live in sort of a remote area. The daughter 
sort of strikes up a friendship with a, a local boy and the relationship between the father and daughter um, becomes more complicated than it appears initially. And uh, this sort of coming of age story happens alongside, I guess, what we would call like a, a genre story. I, don't, I, I mean, how much do you think we should give away here, Peter? You don't, you don't think it's okay to give away the fact of what the genre is? I think we can say. I think so. The, okay. the little girl is actually a vampire, yes. um, and so the the relationships in this movie are the most really dynamic and and compelling and interesting. This is not your typical vampire story. It's it's a really great coming of age tale that also has some real tragedy and heartbreak worked into it. So I'm very curious to see what this does in terms of uh, you know being slotted into a, a ten episode show because the I have not read the original novel, but the movie version, especially the 2008 original, worked so, so well in that two-hour format. Um, and this show is going to be inspired by that and sort of start at the same with the same like uh, dynamics in place. But it says that the, the official synopsis says, with these emotionally charged and terrifying ingredients as a starting point, let the right one in will upend genre expectations, turning a naturalistic lens on human frailty, strength, and compassion. So the idea of this show taking the movie's dynamics and using that as a starting point makes me wonder just how far past the end of the story mm. that we've seen already this show will go. Um, I don't oh, know. So you, you don't think that this first season of the show is going to be a like how they've been doing it recently with TV adaptations where they're taking the movie and kind of fleshing it out into one season of TV. You, you think it could actually like the end of the movie could take place like, you know, a few episodes in to the show. It very, it very well could. Um, I don't know. It, or they could save that for the second season or something. I could see it going really well yeah. either way. Like the handmaid's tale, I think is a really great example where that first season just adapted the book super cleanly and that was it. And then beyond that, it, it just sort of continued the story from there into new waters that, that readers didn't know about. Um, so yeah. What do you think about this, Peter? Are you excited about this? Um, as someone who's a fan of this property, I, I mean, the relationships here are the, the core of this story. And I do think that there's more that could be delved into um, in in that sense and, and to be able to flesh it out into a, you know, a, a, a TV miniseries or even doing what you're saying and like actually uh, starting, starting it off with that and, you know, go, going further than the, the movie and, uh, or the movies. But I guess for, for me, the thing, the promising thing here is showtime. The fact that this has landed at showtime because this is a property that you need to show, there's some blood involved. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, there's, you know, both of the adaptations for have their own unique style, and uh, I feel like if this was landing at CW, I would have no interest in it at all. But I would totally yeah. understand what the CW of, version of this would be. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, the fact that it's at Showtime or like you know. If it went to AMC, maybe I, I, I could understand that. But Showtime, you get to do a little bit more risque kind of stuff there. So uh, that that excites me that it's going to be adult, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the downside for me is like I don't subscribe to Showtime. And I know that they have their <laughs> shows like Billions. And, you know, people people love some of the stuff that's on Showtime. But I still feel like in this new 
you know, the new streaming era, Showtime is still. You Showtime's know, not a part of any of the packages yet. I don't think they would think so. I think they have their own streaming thing, um, but I don't think that they're like widely accepted as a as part of a you know any any uh, bundling package or anything. So uh, yeah, I mean the, the trouble I think is going to be getting people to subscribe to Showtime if they don't already. So yeah, uh, yeah we'll see what happens. I guess. Okay, I want to touch on two things from the world of movie scores or TV scores. Uh, first, of which is. Batgirl is bringing on the composer of Loki uh, that was Natalie Holt. I, I loved her work on Loki. And the se- secondary was Mandalorian composer Ludwig Gorenson. Is mm-hmm. that how you pronounce his name? I, I, I've yes. never really said it out loud. Um, he's returning for the Book of Boba Fett. So those are two cool composers uh, being involved with cool, uh, I guess, genre uh, projects. My question to you, Ben, is I, I, I guess more so with with Ludwig uh, is were you, he, he is so much so synonymous with the sound of the Mandalorian, but I was kind of expecting the Book of Boba Fett to have its own kind of like unique feel and sound to it. Although it sounds like a lot of the same directors are being shared here. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on this? Are you happy that Ludwig is part of this series as well? Or I think so. Cause our, our um, uh, Max every, a new writer for slash film wrote the article about this. And he sort of basically makes the case for Ludwig, Ludwig Gornson as the new, um, like the new voice, the new sound of Star Wars uh, as a as a franchise, you know. And I, I think there, I think he makes a lot of good points here. I think John Williams, you know, did his thing, and and he is obviously a legend. And like, you know, we stand all of it. Like he's the greatest. <laughs> um, I don't. I certainly don't want to take anything away from him. But like, I think he, you know, he's coming back to do one more Indiana Jones movie. But he's not going to be making movies forever. He's not going to be composing scores forever. And I think for Kathleen Kennedy and the folks at Lucasfilm to pick Ludwig Gorenson as sort of like the, the new blood, you know, the new voice um, to, to sort of craft this sound that, that uh, bleeds over into different series, but also has this sort of cohesive propulsiveness, this cohesive feel to make it all feel of a piece. Um, I think that's a really, really great pick on their part. Obviously, he won an Oscar for his work with Black, uh, creating the the score for Black Panther. Uh, he's going to be back for Black Panther too. So he's like one of the most in demand composers, you know, working in the industry right now. Um, but if he sort of takes the mantle from John Williams, if John Williams like passes that down to him and sort of hands the baton on, and Ludwig Göransson is like the next generation of Star Wars music. Uh, I think they could have made way, way worse choices. So I, I'm I'm excited about um, the potential that he could bring. He's such a creative guy when it comes to creating new sounds. And I think he's crafted a certain sound for this sort of Mandalorian universe where these characters are front and center here. But I would not put it past him to completely re- like, you know, upend the the apple cart and come up with something totally different for a different story if you were to get hired on to do the music for the next Star Wars film, the the new uh, Rogue Squadron movie that Patty Jenkins is making. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he gets hired to do that. It probably won't sound anything like his work on The Mandalorian or Book of Boba Fett. So I, I'm excited to see what he does. Yeah, I, I, I do agree with Max here. That That is a cool um, 
angle to take it. I, I'm not sure if, if Ludwig, uh, does he have the time to do every single Star Wars project? Does he have the want? It feels like he's such a talented guy and he probably has ambitions beyond Star Wars. But that that said, I think you said an interesting word there. The Mandalorian uh, I forget what you said, Mandalorian universe or Mandalorian verse mm. or something like that. And I could totally see him being the sound of that, that corner of the star Wars universe, because all of it needs is supposed to tie together. They're having that Ahsoka show. They're having, of course, Mandalorian. They're having the book of Boba Fett. Uh, and all these things are going to intertwine and eventually probably come together at some point. So you, you kind of need the person that's behind those sounds and that, that music to be able to interweave those themes together when, when those moments come, which yeah. becomes a problem with like some of the Marvel movies. So <laughs> yes, it does. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, lastly, there was a trailer that came out today for Paul Thomas Anderson's new movie, licorice pizza. And uh, first of all, what is up with this title, Ben? Licorice Pizza. Uh, I I think it was uh, the name of a record store in the 1970s, uh, like that that was um, situated in the Valley, which is where this movie takes place. I think that's the the story behind it. Um, yeah, it's a weird title for sure. <laughs> like if you don't have that context going in, you're like, I'm sorry, what is it called? <laughs> so uh, it's definitely a unique one, though. Yeah, it was a record store in Southern California, and it took its name from the joke about unsuccessful records being sold as licorice pizza. Oh, so, yeah, before that, it was under the working title of uh, was it Soggy Bottom, mm-hmm. which I guess is is that a reference to um, Coen Brothers? <laughs> Coen Brothers, the oh, oh, oh brother Awerthal. I don't know. Oh, I, it, it might be, yeah. Either way, both of those titles are really strange. The, the trailer's out uh, today. We'll link it in the show notes. Uh, ben, what is your first reaction to this trailer? I mean, show me the movie right now, please. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not like as much of a Paul Thomas Anderson um, super fan as some other folks we have on the on the Slash Film staff. Like, I did not I'm raising my for... hand right now. <laughs> Oh, you you are one of those people. Oh well, you know what, Ben? I, I was a fan of his earlier films. Like mm-hmm. I, I loved, uh, you know, Boogie Nights. I loved Heart Heart Eight. I loved. Um, wait, these are all escaping me. Uh, what's, what's the other uh, Magnolia? Sorry, that th- that word was like escaping my mind. Magnolia. <laughs> I I do feel like his later works, especially like Phantom Threat, it, they're so specific. Mm-hmm. And what they're trying to do, and it, it's not very accessible, I think. Like, his earlier works, even though it's about, you know, a porn star, it's a very accessible coming-of-age story. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so uh, did you not like his earlier works, too? Or? Well, no, I I, um, I I actually have never seen Punch Drunk Love. That's, like, the one movie of his that I've never not gotten around to for some reason, but yeah, I, I enjoyed them for the most part. I think I was a little baffled and, and remain a little baffled to be honest with you by Magnolia. Like I'm, I'm still not sure what that movie quote unquote means. Um, <laughs> like I, I maybe need to, to give that one a rewatch, but uh, you got to rewatch it then. It's so good. Yeah. I, I just didn't really care 
I didn't go as crazy for Phantom Thread or Inherent Vice as some other people. I think The Master, which he made almost 10 years ago now in 2012, was the last uh, Paul Thomas Anderson movie that I really loved. So it's been a long time. I mean, 10 years, that's a long time. Yeah. So I'm I'm uh, still, of course, like impressed with him as a filmmaker. Um, he's like undeniably uh, a talented storyteller. I'm just, I'm hoping that um, this movie is more that we're more simpatico, like me as an audience member and him as a storyteller are, are more on the same wavelength in Licorice Pizza than uh, we have been in the past two efforts of his. So uh, that's going to change for everybody, I'm sure, but, um, and, and be different for everybody. I know there are people just like, who are like all in on every single thing that he does. And like, you know, he's like one of the greatest filmmakers of all time or whatever. And I'm, I'm not quite in that camp. I, I like him a lot, but, um, but yeah, I'm, I, so I, I don't know what kind of, uh, how representative I am of like the the average person's voice or whatever when it comes to uh, <laughs> thoughts about Paul Thomas Anderson, but especially in like film circles. But um, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited about this trailer. I think it looks really really good, and the, it's a really super well cut trailer that has a lot of I used the word propulsiveness earlier. It has that that sort of drive um, that just makes me like show me this thing. It looks really great. So yeah. Yeah, and I would actually even even though I like Paul Thomas Anderson more than you, I would actually say his last great movie was actually There Will Be Blood in two thousand seven. So I I didn't love The Master. I thought I was oh, wow. gonna love it. I mean, the performances there, just as a story, I don't mm. I don't even think it um, tackled Scientology in the way that maybe it was my expectations. Mm-hmm. of it but um anyways uh this looks totally my speed it, it looks like a coming of age story it takes place in southern california deals with uh you know uh hollywood and uh acting and i got a little bit of an almost famous vibe yes uh, so and i i figured you would appreciate that yeah uh and, and it has some some faces here that seem familiar but we don't quite recognize i know you did an article on this this lead here. Who's he? Yeah, uh, Cooper Hoffman stars in this movie, and he is Paul Tom. I'm sorry, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's son. Philip Seymour Hoffman, of course, died in 2014. He was the Oscar-winning actor who actually showed up in five of um, Paul Thomas Anderson's movies beforehand. They were really close collaborators and and big fans of each other and and big supporters of each other. And um, yeah, Cooper Hoffman has never been in anything before. I tried to, I scoured the internet looking for any interview that I could find with this guy just to see if I could like gain some sort of insight into who he is as a person and came up completely empty, which is super rare in the internet age. Uh, so this is like his introduction to the world basically as a performer. So um, I'm really very curious and like uh, I'm intrigued more than anything else. So um, this is obviously like a, a big it's going to be a big emotional deal for a lot of people who were uh, rightfully <laughs> obsessed with Philip Seymour Hoffman as an actor um, to see his son work with one of his closest collaborators. Um, and, and especially for Cooper Hoffman to just jump into the deep end by starring in a Paul Thomas Anderson movie as his first film out of the gate. That's pretty incredible. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very intrigued. Yeah. But I, I, I would, I would argue that Paul, th- there's nobody like Paul Thomas Anderson to shoot what, you know, the, I was going to say Los Angeles, but maybe even like the San Fernando Valley in the way that he does. And it, it th- this looks so good. I, what you, what you said, like, you know, just inject it into my veins right now. <laughs> I want to see it. Uh, and uh, Bradley Cooper doesn't even look like Bradley Cooper in here. And, uh, 
Yeah, he's playing John Peters, who is a man. He's such an interesting guy. Like, if you if you don't know who John Peters is, just look him up. Like, Google some stories about him because uh, we could fill an entire podcast probably just recounting John Peters stories. But um, man, super super interesting dude. A uh, little bit of a controversial personality, but the fact that some uh, people Cooper might know is, John Peters because a lot of people have seen that Kevin Smith story. That's about John Peters, right? The one yes. where he's telling the story of trying to he was writing a Superman movie for john peters so if you haven't seen that i'll link that in the show notes it's a crazy even if you don't like kevin smith you'll enjoy the story it's it's yeah, it's one of the famous like hollywood stories of all time at this point i think yeah um but yeah th- this really feels to me like paul thomas anderson kind of going back to his roots i i, I could be wrong i mean it, it, it's hard to tell from this trailer because it's it's kind of p- positioned in a music video style where it's playing the same song and it's uh a montage of clips and you really don't get a sense much more than the the broad overarching story and mm-hmm. the, the tone uh but it really does seem to me like it's going back to his roots and his earlier work which really excites me as a, a fan of those those films so definitely but uh, that does it for today's Slash One Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, and turns at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And please rate and read this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow.